Norman Centuries, Episode 13, Rogerios Rex. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the rise of Roger II, ending with his coronation as King of Sicily in southern Italy, giving the island its first taste of a native ruler. That crown, however, had come with a fearsome cost. It had been granted by the anti-pope Anacletus II in return for Norman support. At the time, it wasn't clear which of the rival popes, Anacletus or Innocent, would be accepted by Christendom, but as the months passed, more and more crowned heads went over to Innocent's camp. This was mostly due to the influence of the remarkable Bernard of Clairvaux, a seemingly minor abbot of a small French monastery. Bernard dominated all of Europe for nearly two decades through the sheer force of his personality. He easily convinced both the wavering French king and Henry I of England to support Innocent, and thanks to his tireless preaching, the majority of the population outside of Italy was converted to the cause as well. The one important holdout was the German king Lothair, who was being heavily courted by both camps. Anacletus had the great advantage of controlling Rome. Lothair could only be crowned Holy Roman Emperor in the Eternal City, and he wouldn't be completely secure on his own throne until that was done. He tried to waffle as long as possible, popular opinion was obviously on Innocent's side, but a personal visit by Bernard changed his mind. Poor Lothair tried to resist, but a public tongue-lashing soon had him promising to lead an army down to Rome to evict Anacletus, overthrow Roger, and install Innocent. When Lothair finally arrived in Italy in the spring of 1133, he found the situation unexpectedly in his favor. Roger's coronation was deeply unpopular in southern Italy. The great Norman barons of the peninsula saw no reason why they should have their wings clipped by a man whose family had only been there for a generation. And in anticipation of Lothair's arrival, they gathered a rebel army and stormed several royal castles. Roger, in a rare miscalculation, had taken the field against them. He had shown great personal valor, cutting a swath through the opposing infantry, but his own army had been smashed. The defeat shook even his closest supporters. Venosa, the bastion of Houtville power, where four of the most famous members of his family lay buried in state, joined the rebels. All across Apulia and Calabria, royal garrisons were slaughtered and men flocked to the imperial banner. With Lothair himself present to lead them, Roger's Italian territory seemed about to fall into German hands. A lesser man would have cut his losses and fled, but Roger kept his head. The size and speed of the rebellion had also taken Lothair by surprise, and he wasn't prepared to take full advantage of it. When the rebel leaders met with him, they were disappointed to find that the size of his army had been greatly exaggerated. He'd only brought with him about 2,000 men, hardly enough to topple Roger from his new throne. In fact, it wasn't even enough to take all of Rome. Anacletus and his supporters controlled the right bank of the Tiber, including the fortress of Hadrian's tomb, Castle San Angelo, and St. Peter's. Lothair had to settle for installing Innocent into the older Lateran Palace, where he was dutifully crowned Holy Roman Emperor, all the while being taunted by Anacletus' supporters across the Tiber. Any hopes that he would stay to lead a grand offensive against Roger were dashed a few days after the ceremony. Emperor Lothair had pressing business in Germany and had gotten what he wanted out of Italy. Making a promise to return in force, as a sop to Bernard, he withdrew over the Alps as quickly as he could. His departure left the rebels stranded. Roger had rebuilt his army and was determined to show them no mercy. Innocent tried to assist the barons as much as he could, excommunicating any soldier who participated in Roger's army. But the clever Sicilian had recruited his troops from Sicily's Muslims, 
who were famously loyal and couldn't care less about the Pope. Every major rebellious town in Apulia was burnt, and their leaders were executed. Roger had customarily shown generosity in victory, but now there was only the mailed fist. The two barons who had started the rebellion were rounded up and publicly humiliated. The first was hung while the second was made to hold the rope, then he too was dispatched. Roger returned to Sicily well pleased with himself. Despite the disastrous start to the year, it had ended in triumph. His pope was still secure in Rome, his entire kingdom was at peace, and he had successfully defied an emperor and a pope. Unfortunately, it proved to be only a short respite. Within a few weeks of his return to Palermo, a fever swept through the city, leaving the queen dead and Roger broken with grief. He shut himself up in the palace, refusing to see anyone, and the rumor that he was dead awoke all the rebellious dreams in southern Italy. More seriously still was the newly minted Emperor Lothair's return to Germany. He had gotten what he wanted in a coronation and had technically fulfilled his oath to install Innocent as Pope in Rome, but Bernard of Clairvaux wasn't amused. The abbot had come to the conclusion, sensibly enough, that Anacletus would never be ousted from Rome while Roger was king of Sicily, and he demanded that Lothair turn around, reinvade Italy, and properly finish the job. Bernard wasn't the only one worried about Roger. Southern Italy had been at least partly under the control of the Byzantine Empire for the better part of the last thousand years, and now the Sicilians had started raiding Byzantium's rich Dalmatian coast. How long before Roger had the same idea as his uncle Giscard and invaded the empire proper? The Byzantine Emperor John the Beautiful didn't want to wait around and find out. He wrote to Lothair offering his support in a joint attack on Sicily. On the way to the German court, the Byzantine delegation stopped at Venice, where they found a warm welcome. The Venetian trading empire had been considerably hurt by the growth of Palermo, and the doge offered the full support of his navy. In Germany, the situation had also improved for Lothair. His coronation had cowed his potential rivals, and he could now afford to throw all of his considerable resources into the Italian campaign. He spent a year gathering his forces, and then, as soon as the snows cleared, he crossed the Alps and descended into northern Italy. This time, there was no resisting the Germans. The northern cities fell with barely a struggle, and the Norman barons again rose up in revolt. Pope Innocent, together with his court, processed with Lothair receiving the submission of Italian cities. With any luck, they would mop up the mainland before winter hit, and the next spring invade Sicily. Despite the seriousness of the threat to his kingdom, Roger didn't panic. He had two great advantages, the summer heat, which the northerners weren't used to, and the feudal underpinnings of Lothair's army. The German emperor wasn't an absolute monarch. He could command several months of military service from his vassals, but he couldn't hold them forever. The longer the campaign wore on, the more restless they would become. So Roger carefully avoided any pitched battles. Every time Lothair advanced, he retreated. At the same time, he constantly offered to meet separately with his antagonists in order to strain the relationship between pope and emperor. By the late summer, his efforts had paid off. The heat was oppressive, malaria had decimated the ranks, and Lothair's vassals were openly demanding to be released from service. Virtually the only thing they could all agree on was their distaste for the pope and his Italian court, who complained constantly and for whose sake they had been dragged into this unpleasant country hundreds of miles from their homes. Things got so bad that there was an attempt on the Pope's life, encouraged by Sicilian gold, which was only stopped by Lothair's personal involvement. In a last ditch to force a decisive battle, 
The emperor besieged Salerno, Roger's mainland capital, but the Sicilian king calmly stayed where he was. That was enough. The annoyed emperor told his Italian allies to look after themselves and returned across the Alps. The entire campaign had been a colossal waste of time. He hadn't managed to accomplish anything permanent. There were still two popes arguing over Rome, Roger was still secure as ever, and without the imperial army, the Italian rebels couldn't hope to stand against the Normans. When Lothair died suddenly two months after returning to Germany, the Sicilian king had already recovered most of his territory. The emperor was followed to the grave a few months later by Roger's pope, Anacletus II. Innocent was now the rightful pontiff by default, and Roger did his best to come to terms with his old enemy. As he stamped out the last traces of revolt, he was careful not to cross into papal territory. He also officially recognized Innocent as the rightful pope, and sent letters to all his supporters to do likewise. As far as Innocent was concerned, however, this was far too little too late. Without Roger's meddling, he would have been the accepted pope for years now, and the church wouldn't have had to go through the pain and embarrassment of a schism. Roger was officially excommunicated for the second time, and since no emperor was handy to lend an army, Innocent raised one himself and invaded the northern kingdom. Papal armies had never fared well against the Normans, and this one was no exception. On the 22nd of July, 1139, the forces of Innocent were ambushed by Roger as they crossed the Grigliano River. By nightfall, the Pope, his cardinals, and his entire treasury were all in Roger's hands. Like his predecessor, Pope Leo IX, who had been captured by Robert Giscard, Innocent bore his defeat stoically. The Normans treated him with excessive respect, almost enough to disguise the fact that he was a prisoner, but he was under no illusions as to his position. Three days later, he officially confirmed Roger as King of Sicily, Duke of Apulia, and Prince of Capua, and recognized term by term what Anacletus had agreed to nine years before. He was powerless to do otherwise, but he did have one last spark of defiance. At the ceremony celebrating the occasion, with Roger in attendance dressed in the heavy robes of state and the summer sun beating mercilessly down, he preached a sermon of enormous length. The return to Sicily was a happy one for Roger. Southern Italy had finally been pacified. It was never again to offer serious resistance to him for the remainder of his reign, and he left it in the capable hands of his son, Roger III. It had taken him ten years to win his kingdom against the strenuous opposition of two emperors and a pope, and now he meant to make sure it endured. The first step was to give it a constitution, uniform laws that would create a strong centralized state. He had had enough of feudal arrangements. The German invasion had showed him the limitations of that. His kingdom would be based instead on Byzantium. In a flurry of laws, he created his idea of the divine monarchy, an all-powerful sovereign who never let the mask of authority slip. Reinforcing this was a new uniform coinage, copied directly from Byzantine models, which showed Roger in imperial robes on one side and Christ Pantocrator on the other. The old Norman coins had displayed St. Peter to show their loyalty to the Pope, but the King of Sicily needed no intermediary. Along with the internal reforms came a rash of architectural and scientific activity. The two crown jewels of Norman Sicily, the Palatine Chapel and the Martyrana, were built, each a unique fusion of Byzantine, Arab, and Norman culture. A great commission was appointed to study geography, made easier by Sicily's busy ports since the world came to Palermo. For over a decade, every ship that requested entry to a Sicilian port was boarded and questioned about what they had seen. 
The geographical information collected was recorded in two places, a large globe of pure silver inscribed with all of the world's known continents and countries, and a tome called the Book of Roger. It was surprisingly accurate. Scandinavia is described as having few hours of sunlight in the winter, and the sister Norman kingdom of England is described as cold and wet. It even correctly describes the earth as round, some three and a half centuries before Columbus. Palermo became the center of a mini-renaissance, the one place outside Spain or Constantinople where scholars had access to Greek, Arab, and Western learning. During this period, Roger had also managed to neutralize his most outspoken critic, Bernard of Clairvaux. Before he'd returned to Germany, Lothar had made it quite clear what he thought of Italians, and Bernard, a zealous guard of the Pope's dignity, had been offended. Roger, on the other hand, had spent the intervening time founding monastic houses, and his donations to the Cistercian order had swung the abbot of Clairvaux over to his side. But the other two great enemies of Norman Sicily, Byzantium and the Western Empire, had not forgotten. They had left Roger in peace so far only because each power had been swept up in its own problems. Almost as soon as Lothair died, his Byzantine counterpart John Comnenus was killed in a freak hunting accident. The new monarchs, Conrad of Hohenstaufen in Germany and Manuel Comnenus in Constantinople, solemnly agreed to a joint campaign. But just as they mobilized their armies, one of the crusader kingdoms fell to the Turks, and a new crusade erupted. The imperial relationship was severely strained by the usual events, Western crusaders failing to distinguish between Greeks and Turks, and Byzantine intrigue straying near to treachery. Somehow, through it all, Conrad and Manuel managed to strike up a genuinely warm friendship. When Conrad was injured during the crusade, Manuel personally nursed him back to health, and the two renewed their pledge to go to war against Roger. Two years later, the imperial families got closer still when Manuel married Conrad's daughter, Bertha. The nuptials were a warning to Roger of the determination of his enemies. He'd been trying to get Manuel to marry one of his daughters for years, although to be honest, his behavior hadn't helped his cause. During the crusade, he had taken advantage of Manuel's distraction to have his admiral George of Antioch sack Athens, Thebes, and Corinth, the three richest cities in Greece. The annoyed Manuel raised a huge army 30,000 strong, but just as the long-awaited campaign was about to get underway, a horde of barbarians came pouring over the Pindus Mountains into northern Greece, and the emperor was forced to divert his army to deal with the threat. Manuel was a brilliant general. Gibbon says he appeared in war ignorant of peace, in peace incapable of war. But by the time he had driven the barbarians out, the snows had ended the campaigning season. In the spring he tried again, but once again was delayed. This time it was Sicilian gold that financed an uprising in Serbia, threatening the empire's western border. Manuel sent the fleet to deal with the problem, and while it was away, Roger cheekily had his admiral sail into the Propontis and fire some arrows into the gardens of the imperial palace. But such delaying tactics could only last for so long. By 1152, both Conrad and Manuel had dealt with their respective obstacles and were ready to march. The two emperors made plans to meet in northern Italy and then proceed south where the Venetian fleet would be there to ferry them across the straits to Italy. The moment was perfect. Roger's son and namesake had recently died, and Roger, who had now outlived five of his six children, seemed suddenly old and vulnerable. There seemed little that could shield the Norman kingdom from the coming storm, but once again it was saved by that most intangible resource, luck. In the spring of 1152, just as Conrad was starting his march, he suddenly died, 
and as Germany convulsed in a power struggle, the war against Roger was quietly abandoned. Manuel had too many enemies closer at home to risk it alone, and in any case, he had already realized that Venice posed a far more serious threat than Palermo. Even now, he was considering the first strike against the Sea Republic that would lead inexorably to the tragedy of the Fourth Crusade. That was some years in the future, but already it seemed as if an age was ending. Conrad was merely the first of the great figures to exit the stage. He was followed the next year by Bernard of Clairvaux and then George of Antioch, the remarkable admirable who had won the Normans their North African empire. The loss of his most able advisor seemed to sap the last of Roger's energy. He retired to his pleasure dome in Palermo, a mix of exotic zoo, garden, and palace, and died quietly two years later. He was buried in a simple porphyry tomb in Palermo's cathedral, dressed in the ornate robes of a Byzantine emperor, complete with a crown of drooping pearls. Across his chest was laid his sword, emblazoned in Latin with the words, The Apulian, Calabrian, Sicilian, and African, all obey my will. He had been a remarkable ruler. Sicily was never to see one like him again. His behavior at times left much to be desired. His infidelity was famous, and the practice of openly keeping a harem of Muslim women earned him the nickname the baptized sultan. But in affairs of state, he never avoided the responsibilities of leadership or gave in to the temptation of exploiting power for its own sake. He was a unique blend of northern energy and southern refinement, the product and inspiration of the Norman kingdom in full bloom. After him, it would slide into dissolution, but he still possessed that fearsome drive of his ancestors that had won them two kingdoms at opposite ends of Europe. As one courtier wrote, he accomplished more in his sleep than others did in their waking day. That accomplishment, a seemingly impossible task, had been to forge a petty, tribal land of diverse cultures and religions into a single united kingdom. Compared with the rest of the Italian peninsula, which remained stubbornly divided and quarreling for the next seven centuries, Roger's territory was a beacon of hope of what was possible. And it was surprisingly enduring. It was battered and squandered, tossed around between the crowned heads of Europe, but the kingdom of Sicily remained intact till the unification of modern Italy in the 19th century. Join me next time as I look at the reign of Roger's only surviving son, the mercurial, frustrating, and misnamed William the Bad. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.